You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So the the title of our uh, series that we're in, of course, is A More Christ-Like God. And the the title of today's service is Of Lions, Lambs, and Donkeys. And so we're going to talk a bit about violence and about nonviolence. So let's start our our first question. Here's our first question. Did God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac? Did God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac? Here it is. Did God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac? And you can answer, put your answer in there. We'll see what people here say. So 39 of you said yes, 11 of you said no. I get it, you know, because in the end, of course, he didn't sacrifice him, right? And so was God just testing Abraham? He didn't really want him to kill his child. I mean, child sacrifice was a part of of kind of Western Asia worship, right? So it wasn't like that was uncommon in that time. But God didn't actually want child sacrifice. Not the one true God. Not our God. Not the God of Abraham. But then there's that story where where he almost, he binds up Isaac and almost sacrifices him. But God stays his hand. Okay, so that's, that's kind of a tough one. Next question. Did God command Joshua to kill children as a part of the cleansing of Canaan? But just so you know, there is a story in the Old Testament where there is this kind of killing of everyone. Not just of soldiers, but of like women and children. I know, these, these are hard questions. Jim in particular wants, a, wants to know the right answer. Let's go to the third question. This might be a little easier. Less provocative, less difficult. Third question, does God change? Does God change? You got three seconds to put your answer in. I'll be curious. So 41 of you say no. Nine of you say yes. Uh, On this one, Christian theology would go with those who say no. You're welcome, Jim. (laughs) Who knew? Such a lively crowd. Yeah, Christian theology says that God... It's consistent. God is immutable. God's the same. The psalmist would say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God doesn't change. Certainly God's character doesn't change. I mean, he's on the move, but he's not changing. All right, two more questions. Is it possible that God would require you to kill someone? Is it possible that God would require you to kill someone. Uh, 41 of you say no. Five of you say yes. And again, that's just a poll. <laughs> Somebody said, wow, what a great Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> last question. Last question. If God 
told you to kill someone, would you do it? Good question. If God told you to kill someone, would you do it? Wow, 12 of you said yes. Listen, I was really hoping that everybody in the room would have said, no, I'm not going to kill nobody. Like, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of a basic thing. Like, do not kill. It's on the list. It's on, like, the big list of things to do and not do. Like, no other gods before me, and no graven image, and don't take my name in vain, and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, and honor your mother and father. You know, eventually you get down that list, and it says, do not kill. <laughs> All right, so what are we going to do with this stuff? I think there's a few different ways we might respond, and I've got, I've got a few here for you. So it, it's possible, one of the possible answers to all these questions is that we can question the morality of God. We can say that perhaps at some times God is monstrous. Sometimes God is good, and sometimes God is not good. Sometimes God wants us to protect the children, and other times God wants us to kill the children. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that we can question the immutability of God. Maybe God does change over time. That way back in the ancient times, God was like, well, sometimes you got to kill kids. But now God's like, oh, no, no, no. Don't kill nobody, especially the children. And our third option would be, amongst the possibilities, is that we can question how we read Scripture. Could it be that we need to read the Bible in a different way? And friends, for me, option three is the only viable option. God is good. God is what good is. <laughs> to be like God is to be good. That's, that's, that's kind of, that's what's been revealed to us. God is love. God is not in any way monstrous. And so I can't, I can't as, a, as a kind of an orthodox Christian, entertain the first option. God is not monstrous. And again, as a Christian theologian, I can't really entertain the second option. It's not like God used to be okay with the killing of children, but he's like, whew, I don't guess that works very well, or I guess that's a little too harsh. No, 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 no. God doesn't change. If, if it's possible that God changes, then how do we know that in some point in the future, God might not change a lot and be just utterly evil? Do you see the problem we have there? Like... I don't think that's possible. But this third option, I think, is a pretty viable one. That is, we can question how we read these texts. Like, maybe those stories are stories that teach us something, but what are they supposed to teach us? And is our reading of them the, the best reading? Like, are we reading it correctly? And we've said this before, but I think it bears repeating that Jesus is our God. Now, if, you're, if you say for a second, now, 
well, haven't we always read it this way and how can we not know? Listen, there's plenty of times that the people of God over the years have been reading a text a certain way and then they shifted and they started to read it differently. Let's think about the earliest church, those early followers of Jesus like Peter and John and James and Paul and others. They were all Jewish people. They all practiced circumcision. They thought circumcision was what the text said they should do and then therefore they should follow it, right? Except when the early church got together, amongst the things they said they wouldn't put on these new Gentiles as they became followers of Jesus was circumcision. So they moved, they moved away from that practice. They were reading that text differently. They weren't saying it's for all people for all time. Or what about sacrifices? You realize that for hundreds of years, the people of God sacrificed and it was based on how they read the text but eventually they would stop that I mean the book of Hebrews actually says it no sacrifice remains so just in case you didn't know you can't kill an animal as a Christian act of worship I mean you knew that but you realize that by knowing that, by knowing that you don't kill an animal as a Christian act of worship, it shows a change in the way a, t a text has been read. What about food? I recently had a, a bacon double cheeseburger. Now, there's a lot of reasons perhaps I should not have eaten a bacon double cheeseburger, both in terms of my heart health and my weight. But if I had, if I had bacon, let's, maybe if, if I'd had a a bacon lettuce tomato sandwich. Maybe that would have been a little healthier. But, but, if I, but if I eat a BLT, you realize that that's contrary to, right, what a text in the Bible says. And the same goes with tattoos and the same goes with wearing clothes that are made of different material. Like I don't think this shirt is 100% cotton. I think it's a, it's a fabric blend. There are other things too. Like the holidays, like Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. These were all in the scriptures. And yet we don't read them that way. And then now as Christians, not just, not just those first Christians and how they read the Old Testament, as we call it, but as Christians today and how we read the Bible, there's all sorts of things that we're reading differently than we used to read them. Let's take slavery as an example. We can all agree, it's not a Kahoot question, and based on the way you answered some of those other questions, I'm glad I didn't answer ask you this one. But I'm going to assume that if I had put on the screen, is slavery ever okay? You would have all answered no. A Christian view of slavery is that one person should not own another person. Yet, in the New Testament, it says, slaves obey your masters. It says in Ephesians and it says it in Colossians. Of course, it also says in Philemon, to Philemon, who owned Onesimus, I want you to treat him as a brother, not as a slave. So I feel like it was pushing us on a trajectory. It was leading us somewhere. Or to pick up a passage from the Gospel of John, Jesus says the Spirit will come and lead us into all truth. 
it will teach us what the truth is and it will teach us how to read these difficult texts, I think. There's another one. I, I, at the moment, right now, I'm wishing I would have asked this one. <laughs> polygamy. Is polygamy ever okay? Amongst the biblical views of marriage, right, you have one man with lots of, hus one husband with lots of wives. We see that a lot in the scriptures, a whole lot, right? Abraham had multiple wives and Moses had multiple wives and David had multiple wives and Solomon had 300 wives. And I have nothing to say about that. And even in the New Testament, the closest we get to a condemnation of polygamy in the New Testament, it says this in, in 1 Timothy, if someone wants to be a bishop, the bishop can only be married to one wife. Which if you have the requirement that to be a bishop, you have to have only one wife, it presupposes that there are people in the community that have more than one. Like you don't have that requirement on the list. You can look up any denomination that we currently have expressed in the United States. So Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, Episcopal, Church of Christ, Pentecostal, what have you. There's not a single Protestant denomination that has on its list of requirements for ministers that you have to be monogamous as opposed to being polygamist. We don't list that requirement because we all presuppose monogamy. So change is part of what it means to be alive. And it is part of how we've been changing all this time. It's how the early Christians changed. It's how Christians have changed over time. And it's how we too have changed. And so if the change has to do with how we're reading our scriptures, coming back to this idea, our primary guide, our rabbi, has to be Jesus. No Christian should go read the Old Testament without Jesus as their rabbi. It has to, we have to follow Jesus. Jesus is our savior, but Jesus is also our Lord. He's our master. We are his disciples, meaning we, we follow Jesus. We mimic Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, this is a post-resurrection story. Jesus is on the way to Emmaus and there's these two disciples and they're talking and they don't recognize him. And they're down because Jesus has been crucified. And he says, what's, what's up? And they're like, haven't you heard? The one we thought was the Messiah has been killed. So now we don't know what to think. We don't know what to believe. We don't know what to do. And it has this verse. I love this. This is Luke chapter 24, verse 27. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures so that Jesus explained to these disciples what the Old Testament meant, particularly as it relates to Jesus. 
And if we follow the Apostle Paul, the whole reason we even had the law in the first place was to point to Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says that Christ is the end of the law. Meaning that Christ is the goal of the law. He's the purpose. Like the whole reason we had the law was to have a sign that pointed to Jesus. So this, this is what it's for. It points to Jesus. And so Jesus now says, look at how all these things point to me. Um, I had thought about titling this sermon, The End of Vengeance. I mean, we went with Lyons lambs and donkeys and you'll see why in a minute but Paul says this um, this is Romans chapter 12 if it is possible as far it depends on you live peaceably with all people beloved never avenge yourselves but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is who God is. You see, if we tried to right the wrongs, we, we get vengeful. We go overboard. We, we become harsh. We, we adopt these kind of evil ways in ourselves. We end up creating evil in the process of trying to stop it. But God doesn't have those problems. Because God is never vengeful. God, God, God doesn't get offended. God doesn't uh, strike back. The empire strikes back. Right? Not God. God can resolve evil. God can respond to it. God can judge it. But that's why we need to leave that to God to do. And it's not like this is a foreign concept in the Old Testament either. There are plenty parts of the Old Testament that also lean in this direction or point in this way. And these are the kind of things that Jesus will pick up on. One of them I love, and I'll try and work through it very quickly. It's a story in 2 Kings. Uh, The king of Aram is trying to attack the Israelites. But every time they get to where the army had been, they had left. And so the king calls in his generals into his tent. And he's like, we got a leak. Somebody is tipping off the Israelites. And we're going to figure out who it is. And somebody's head's going to roll, literally, out, out of the tent. And the generals were like, whoa, slow down, king. Everybody here is faithful to you. Everyone here is loyal. It's not us who's telling the Israelites, you know, that we're on the way. It's this man of God, this guy down from Dothan. Not Dothan, Alabama, but Dothan, Israel. And he's like, all right, all right. Well, let's just go. We'll go get him. We'll take out the man of God. Like, literally, we'll kill him. And then we'll be able to attack Israel. So the whole army of Aram, all the Arameans come down and they encircle Elisha's house in Dothan. And his servant, Gehazi, steps outside (laughs) to get water and he looks around and the whole whole place is surrounded by this army. And he's like, oh, we are dead meat. So he goes inside and he's like, Elisha, it's been good working for you. You know, 
You've been a great boss. We're dead. And Elisha says, we're not dead. There's more that are for us than that are against us. And he's like, oh, he's, he's gone senile. And, he, and Elisha prays for him and sends him back out. And when he goes back out, now he has eyes to see that he couldn't see before. And he doesn't just see the foreign army surrounding them. He sees an army of angels. And he comes back in and says, what are we to do? And so Elisha prays again. And this time the Arameans all go blind. And they lead them from Dothan to Samaria, the capital city of Israel at the time, the northern kingdom. And now the whole Aramean army is surrounded by the Israelites. And Elisha prays again and the Aramean army receives their sight. But now they're surrounded. And the king of Israel looks at the man of God, the prophet. He says, Father, I didn't know he's Catholic. <laughs> okay, I'll stop the jokes. <laughs> Forgive me. He said, Father, Father, what shall we do? Shall we kill them? Shall we kill them? And Elisha says, no. What do you mean, should you kill them? Did you capture them? No. God brought them and put them at your feet. What you should do is make a feast and feed them. And that's what they do. They feed the foreign army. And it says the Arameans left and never again attacked Israel. That is a great story. That's exactly what, what Elisha led Israel to do is exactly what we just read about, right? In, in Romans where Paul says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. I summarized the story for you, but let me read just verbatim this last, this last couple of verses here from that story in 2 Kings. This is the instruction that Elisha gave to the king of Israel. He said this, Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and let them go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. After they ate and drank, they sent them on their way and they went to their master and the Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. That's the kind of peaceful resolution that following God can, can make. I want us to fast forward and, and kind of listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus will say, you have heard it said... And then he'll quote the Torah. But I say to you, you have heard it said, don't commit murder. You have heard it said, do not kill. I'm not sure all of you have heard that because several of you are ready to kill somebody. But you have heard it said, do not kill. But I say to you, do not hate. Did you hear that? You have heard it said, do not kill. But Jesus is calling you to a higher level. He's telling you not to hate. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I'm glad I didn't put that one on there. Who, who thinks it's okay to commit adultery? You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't lust. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. 
You have heard it said, love your neighbor. Now, certainly that sounds like a high standard. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemy. And I'm pretty sure when he said, love your enemy, he meant like, don't kill them. When he said, love your enemy, he meant things like, if they're hungry, give them something to eat. And if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Right? Jesus' way of living is what Paul is advocating for. And what Paul is advocating for and Jesus' way of living is what the Hebrew prophet Elisha was also pointing to. And so we see that Jesus becomes our guide. Jesus becomes the one that helps us interpret how we read these texts. So our God is like Christ. When we say a more Christ-like God, it's not that God needs to become more Christ-like. It's that our understanding, our vision of God needs to be shaped by the revelation of Jesus. Right? We know who God is by looking at Jesus. And in particular, by looking at Jesus on the cross. Let's go to another passage. In, in Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus comes to Nazareth. And he's already been ministering over in Capernaum around Galilee. And he comes and they're excited. They're like the hometown rabbi has made their way back to, to, um, to home. And he's come to this to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. And he stood up and they gave him the scroll of Isaiah, right? Apparently they were following some kind of lectionary. And so he turns to the text of the day and he, he reads this passage. This is Isaiah 61 verses one and two, but it's quoted in Luke chapter four. It says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed grow free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That last line, and the day of the Lord's vengeance, appears in the Isaiah text, but is not quoted in Luke. So when Jesus is quoting this text, he ends it with to proclaim the year of the Lord. He doesn't say, and the day of the Lord's vengeance or the day of the vengeance of our God. Look, God is not vengeful or at least God is not vengeful in the way that we would be vengeful. This doesn't mean that there's no such thing as justice or judgment. There is. But God's justice, God's judgment is never simply punitive. It's not vengeful, it's restorative. That God comes and God restores. And we should all be grateful for that. Because if God's judgment just came and punished, if God's judgment just came and destroyed, then all of us would be destroyed. Because friends, this is, this is the problem with our perceptions. We want God to come and do something, but generally we want God to come and do something out there somewhere. We want God to right that wrong. We want God to deal with that evil. 
But we don't want God to come and, and right this wrong. We don't want God to come and right this evil. The way in which we participate, right? And the way in which we are animated by the powers and principalities of this world. Where we prefer ourselves over others. Where we engage in ways that promote the marginalization of people that hurt people, that damage them. We should all be grateful that God is slow and that God is patient. Because if God wasn't, we'd all be damned. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, he is slow. By the grace of God, he does take his time. And when God does come, when God does respond, again, the truest and fullest revelation of God's response was the life and person of Jesus. And when Jesus suffered the affliction of, of the world and its self-preservation and its ambition and its ego and its evil, right? People were complicit in all those things. They were afraid of the Romans. They were afraid of, the Romans were afraid of insurrection. They were afraid of some guy who preached the way he preached and they killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And that's the story. Sometimes we want to rewrite that story. We want to say, well, yes, he came the first time as a lion. Or excuse me, he came the first time as a lamb, but he's coming back as a lion. Jesus came and he was willing to die for us, but when he's coming back, he's going to be willing to kill for us. And he's going to kill his enemies. I think that's very problematic, friends. Jesus is coming back. And he has a sword, but it's not in his hand, it's in his mouth. And he's been splattered with blood, but I can't think it's the blood of his enemies. I think it's his own blood. Those who follow Christ in Revelation, the great multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation, larger than anyone can count, that says that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's no one you can kill for Jesus. In fact, your own life can't save you. If you laid down your own life for Jesus, that's not what saves you. What saves you is that Jesus laid down his life. They are saved by the blood of the Lamb. The martyrs are not saved by their own blood. And the warriors are not saved by the blood that they spill. We are all saved by the blood of the Lamb. That's the gospel. So, this image of a lion and lamb will end here. This image of a lion and lamb actually comes from Revelation. And it starts here in Revelation chapter 5, where it says... The one, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll 
and its seven seals. And I want, I want to pay careful attention to the grammar here. You all know by, by training, I'm, I'm a biblical scholar. Like that, that's my day job. Um, I'm, I have a PhD in biblical studies. So let, lest you think we're, we're not kind of taking scripture seriously here, we're taking it very seriously. Pay close attention to the grammar. It says that the, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Not that the lion is going to conquer. The conquering has already taken place. And when did he conquer? Well, look at the next verse. It says this. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out, um, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He hears that there's a lion that has conquered, that has conquered. It's already happened. He sees a lamb that has been slain and is yet standing, which is a not so cryptic, you know, uh, pictorial image of the crucifixion of the lamb that was slain but is now standing up right lamb of God that's Jesus was slain that's a crucifixion is now standing that's the resurrection so how did the lion of Judah conquer the lion of Judah conquered by being the lamb of God as he died on the cross so that the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross was the very conquering of the lion of Judah he conquers evil, he conquers death, he conquers sin, he conquers affliction through his own death on the cross that is then vindicated through the resurrection. And in both the cross and the resurrection, it is revealed to us what God is like. And as, as we heard read, read earlier today from 1 John, that we, we see in the child here, Jesus, the, the parent, what the parent is like, the father. And so we're invited. We're invited to come to a table to remember this story. We're invited to come and participate. We're invited to come and receive and so this is what we're trying to do in this Easter season. We're trying to have eyes that can see what God is like. And, and we are convinced, we are convinced that God is like none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is none other than the Lamb of God who was slain and resurrected. And that slain and resurrected lamb is not somehow different than the lion, but is the lion. And the lion's conquering took place in that. And so we hear the voice of Jesus and we follow the voice of Jesus to live lives that are nonviolent. Blessed is the peacemaker. We are to make peace, which I might add is not simply avoiding conflict, but is seeking to resolve the conflict. 
One of my spiritual mentors is fond of saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be shot at from both sides. I, I, I know it might not seem like the most appealing way to live in this world. It might seem more appealing to go ahead and choose a side. Because trust me, everybody else, every other voice in your life is asking you to choose a side. They're asking you to be for this group and against that group. Every voice in your life is pushing you that way. And I'm here to tell you in this 30 minutes on a Sunday morning that God's asking you not to be against them. To quote the Apostle Paul yet again, and we've, we've said this in weeks past, but it bears repeating, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Those people who look different than you or who think different than you who are, or watch a different news channel than you do, they're not your enemy. And even if they were, you should be taking them out to lunch because we're told to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. That's a more Christ-like way. And friends, that's what I hope we can all lean into, lean into, to realize in our lives. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.